I always like the summer. Uh, it, in some ways, it's a, although in this chapel, you're all spread out, it's a bit more intimate and it's usually, especially about this time, it's mostly staff because summer school is over, the B.Ed. is running strongly, but I mean, basically, we're, we're staff. So I want to just tell you a little bit about, I kind of entitled this, Why Do I Get Up in the Morning? Or you could entitle it, What I've Done on My Travels Over the Last Few Months. Because I've been traveling quite a bit um, in between meetings with donors and visits to other institutions for discussions about possible partnerships and board meetings and challenges here at home. Over the last few months, I've had time to travel 20 hours on a flight to Sydney, Australia, uh, 18 hours to Beirut, Lebanon, coming back through Istanbul and missing the bomb by 24 hours. But during that traveling, it seems like that's one of the few times where I just actually get uninterrupted time. I know there's movies on the screen in the planes, but it's also a time where I find myself doing a lot of thinking. I do a lot of thinking. And much of it, it seems, focuses on Tyndale. And when you're in jet lag and you're waking up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, even more of it is focused on Tyndale. And I want to share more of this another time. But what I wanted you to do, to do today is just introduce you to some of my thoughts and some of my reflections uh, from Lebanon about reasons why I get up in the morning and come to work. I sit on the board of the Middle East Institute and the Arab Baptist Seminary there. It's a fascinating place, and every June the board meets, but at the same time, the Middle East Institute uh, creates a, a week of Christian-Muslim dialogue, which is always fascinating, and they bring uh, scholars from around the world to participate in this. This is a fascinating place because there's three Tyndale graduates who give three uh, strategic leadership in that place. One is the president, uh, who was a distinguished alumni, Ali Haddad. And so I was there, and this particular dialogue was focusing on the issue of refugees. And people from around the world, every continent was represented except for Antarctica. Penguins, it appears, are not interested in Muslim-Christian dialogue. And one night, uh, as I was doing some presentations, after I'd done some presentations, I was struck and I went back into my room, went to bed, woke up about 2 o'clock, and I wrote this. Imagine a seminary or a school where students come in spite of their parents who have forbidden them to attend. Imagine a school whose curriculum includes a required course entitled Ministry and Mission in Times of Persecution. Imagine a people so sold out to the gospel that as students they are required to go back into the country of origin for ministry 
no matter what the conditions and no matter what the state of violence is in that country, they are required every year to go back to that place and then at the graduation to go back to that place. In fact, I talked to one of those people who was going back into South Sudan. If you know what's going on in South Sudan, you'd understand why this is a particular critical thing. He's getting married. He's marrying a young woman from, oh, I forget now what the country is in Africa that she's from. And that woman is actually moving here to Toronto, sponsored by someone here. But he is going back for two years because that is what he committed to when he came to the seminary. So they're getting married in August. He goes to South Sudan and she comes and moves to Toronto. Imagine a people, I wrote, who when they sing I surrender all, actually mean it and actually have. These were the kind of people I was sharing with over these last few days I wrote. A people <coughs> whose passion is to change the Middle East and Africa no matter how insurmountable it might seem. I continued to write. I'm humbled by their attentiveness to what I have to say. To the content that I bring them. A content that emerges up from the shallowness of my own faith life and discipleship that has been tested very little and certainly not from the depths of fire and persecution that these sisters and brothers have shared. And still, they sit attentively, hungry for the words of life. They write it all down. They write it all down. And I go back to my room, tears streaming down my face because of the privilege that I have been given to be among them. We have much to learn, I continued to write, from these Christians in the Middle East who sometimes feel abandoned even by their Western brothers and sisters who are so focused on protecting Israel that they are forgotten, the believers in Jordan, in Syria, and Iraq, and Iran, and Egypt, and the Sudan, and Algeria, and Morocco. They do not ask the relevancy questions. Are we relevant in our culture? Because they are too consumed with a desire to be faithful in the midst of the challenges around them. You see, I wrote, they already know that they are out of sync with the world, at least the world in which they live. And what they are struggling with is how to be resilient, how to live faithfully in a world that is hostile to them, to learn how to survive and thrive in that place. Resilience. Interestingly enough, there's a lot being written about that right now. A recent Christianity Today article, a writer from Australia, contrasts the, the call to resilience and relevance as, as a kind of differing, differing tension, if you want. 
This is the definition that we have for resilience out of the Webster's Dictionary. The capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused especially by compressive stress. That's one definition. In other words, the ability of the body to kind of retain its shape and its size and be able to be alive in the midst of stress that is going on around them. I have a number of dents along my car on the side, which is somebody's door pushing in. The side of my Volvo is not resilient. It has not popped back. The second definition, an ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. I recommend you read this article. It's fascinating because he's saying that the discussion that we have had over the years about trying to be, engage our culture and be relevant to our culture has changed dramatically in these last 10 years. And now we're at a time in which resilience is more important than relevance because we are so much out of sync with the place and the culture that we are a part of. There is no way that we can form ourselves in such a way that we will be acceptable. Think about this. I mean, in the early church of the New Testament that began this early church that was being birthed, that began as a small Jewish subgroup and then grows into a movement totally out of sync with its Jewish roots and out of step with the values of the Roman Empire and as a result, undergoing persecution. Look at how the writer of 1 Peter chapter 1 puts it. Listen to what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through this sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ Jesus and sprinkling by his blood. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It's fascinating. Just four little things. Let me pull real quickly out of there. This idea of being pulled out and set apart. I don't want to get all caught up in the theological debate about election. What I want to get caught up in is what that means. To be pulled out, to be set apart, to to somehow be set with a purpose. Listen to what he says. God's elect, strangers, chosen, for obedience to Jesus Christ. He picks it up in chapter two again, if you look at that chapter, where he picks up this idea of us being a holy priesthood. But set with a purpose. 
One of my favorite writers is a man named William Willimon. He used to be the, the dean of the chapel of Duke. He says this about the gospel. The gospel is not a set of ideas, of interesting ideas about which we are supposed to make up our minds. Hear this. The gospel is intrusive news that evokes a new set of practices, a complex of habits, a way of living in the world, discipleship. It's something we need to understand. It's just not something we make a decision about. It's something that we alter our lives around. Every time I'm in, I'm in Beirut, I meet these people on a daily basis at this school. People whose lives haven't just been slightly changed. They no longer do this and they no longer do that but had been radically turned upside down because of the Jesus Christ that they have met. The third thing in this passage in 1 Peter is that we're told that we're living with a hopeful future, something that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. You can't take it away from us. Uh, one of the first books I wrote was a book called Future Faith Churches. I wrote it with Don Pastersky. It was in the 90s, which shows how old I am. And um, the title, Future Faith Churches, meant that what happened was, and it was a book written about the Canadian church, so all of a sudden we were getting asked to speak at conferences that were entitled, the, Is There a Future for the Church in Canada? Which I always thought was a stupid thought, to be quite honest. I mean, this is what Peter is saying in this passage. This, this thing will never fade away. I, I used to stand up and I'd say, listen, the future of the church is not in question. It's whether or not your church will be part of the future of the church. It's something to understand here. And it's something that the Middle East Christians understand. When China went through the bamboo curtain and everybody thought that the church in China would decline, what happened? The church in China grew. When church, the church has undergone persecution in countries and people thought it would waste away, the church thrived. It survived. It thrived. You can't take it away. Then he says this. You're living out of step. You will be persecuted. This is the path of Jesus. Whether you like it or not, we will always be slightly out of step. We will always be somehow not understood. And even worse, there will be times in which we might face or we will face persecution. I don't know if you know the story of Oscar Romero. He was the Archbishop in El Salvador of the Catholic Church. He had been a rather kind of passive priest for a number of years and then he was confronted by the poverty in El Salvador and the kinds of things that were going on. Eventually he was assassinated while serving the Eucharist in a church. 
But something changed, and if you read some of his writings, it's, it's quite remarkable. Something changed in him. And his understanding of moving from the place of comfort to the place of being willing to be persecuted was part of his journey. And he wrote this. A church that suffers no persecution but enjoys the privileges and support of the powers of this world, that church has a good reason to be afraid. But that church is not the church of Jesus Christ. In the Christianity Today article that I'm recommending you read, and I think it's called From Relevance to to Resilience or something like that, but it's in the latest issue. The writer from Australia says this, at moments of great outside pressure throughout church history, we find movements, churches, and disciples who valued not so much cultural relevance as much as resilience. In its infancy, the church embodied resilience in the face of state-sponsored violence under Rome. As the Christianized Roman world of late antiquity developed a thirst for the esoteric and heretical streams of the faith, the church held to the theological resilience of orthodoxy, a Roman civilization fragmented and failed, and Augustine's teaching and Benedict's monastic order provided models of resilient faith in the face of cultural collapse. I believe we're in this kind of time. Over the centuries, Christian leaders, or at least those whom we now see, were more faithful and courageous. These leaders have modeled resilience in the face of communism, radicalized Islam, fascism, and even syncretistic Christianity that emerged in the apartheid era in South Africa or segregationist America. Christian resilience is growing stranger by the day, yet as it becomes rarer, it becomes more valuable. I would say this, it's become more critical as well. I believe we are in the time in our own society where we will find that we'll feel ourselves less and less in sync with the society around us. Recently, while I was speaking in Australia, an email appeared in my inbox asking my, my, me the question, why should I invest in Tyndale? It's a fair question. Although I must admit, after 20 hours of flight, it wasn't the nicest thing to read. And so I was a little frustrated by its posing. And for a number of days, I considered how to answer the query. It wasn't like an email that said something bad. Finally, sitting in an airport waiting for a flight to the next destination we were going, this is what I wrote. This is also why I get up in the morning. Thank you for your email. 
The question that you asked about the significance of Tyndale as a kingdom asset is a fair one. A question any investor or donor should ask before they actually give. There are many ways to answer the question, but what I have chosen to do is simply to describe from my own discoveries of why I think Tyndale is important. Our mission is uniquely needed in a post-Christendom world. We believe that the future of the church is not in new buildings and grand strategies. It is in fact in partnering with local churches to create a movement of people so committed to Christ that whatever their vocational calling is, they, whatever, whether it be in the academy, the workplace, the school, the church, or in community development, or mission organizations, on an entrepreneurial endeavor, or something else, that these people sense God's missional call on their lives. We receive young adults for undergraduate education who are moving from Christian homes and will at graduation be called to live out their faith in a complex and a challenging time. And our role is to be a catalyst, an incubator, a launch pad, building a foundational Christian mind and a formational heart of character and faith. The kind of faith that allows a movement of young adult Christians and emerging Christian leaders to faithfully and redemptively live in a world that no longer sees faith or church as relevant. Our role is to dig deep enough roots so that they can live meaningfully and steadfastly as light and salt in this hostile new world. I would now add, our job is to create resilience. My point is simple. I could have given all sorts of examples, but this place called Tyndale is a very special kingdom asset in which impact on your investment, I said, is being returned in remarkable ways. And I will make no apologies. We live in a strategic time, a critical time, in which we as the people of God are going to have to have the resilience, the steadfastness, the long-suffering. There are reasons that those are part of the fruit of the spirit you realize that we kind of go over love's nice but steadfastness long-suffering patience those will be the characteristics in the character that will be required to live in this time in the 21st century and that's why I get up in the morning let's pray with a sense of wonder and a sense of your grace. And with the power of your spirit that grabs hold of our lives and calls us to something more, we seek intrusive news, good news to be sure, but we seek that it be intrusive in our lives 
so that we live a new set of practices and we live with character in this time. Help us to be faithful. Amen.